This is Control Structure, episode 78 for January 27th, 2015. Big week to everyone listening. This show has notes. You can see them by going to thenexus.tv slash cs78 to see them. Hi, Andrew. Hello, Steve. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we did not get buried by snow that much. Not that much. Yeah, just just enough to uh, make a few things miserable. But, uh, yeah, it seems like you're really chilling out up there. I am. I turned off the heat in the trailer after work, and I didn't turn it back on for the podcast. So the thermometer says it's 20 degrees in here. And that's Fahrenheit, correct? Fahrenheit, yes. <laughs> so, um... Yeah, unlike, you know, looking at all these, uh, you know, temperature monitor- monitoring, uh, you know, gadgets on my desktop, you know, you know, when when my CPU says it's 20 degrees, it's actually a lot warmer than 20 degrees. So. <laughs> the rest of the world, when they say degrees, they think something totally different than us. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm... I remember reading an article on, what, on a website once about things that characterize Americans, and one of them was when people tell you the temperature in degrees, and then you say, and then the American will respond and say, what is that in degrees? <laughs> so, but hey, at least we drive on the right side of the road, like pretty much everyone else does. It's the Brits who drive on the left. It is true. And, and interestingly enough, not only like the former British colonies mostly, but also Japan. Just because they're weird like that. We just wanted to be different. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, speaking about driving on the right side of the road, I was busy playing Road Redemption last weekend. Uh, this is a uh, Kickstarter from, gosh, I think maybe about two years ago. It's essentially a motorcycle street racing game, and it has, like, lots of combat in it because it's inspired by Road Rash. Um, So, like, this game, you essentially, like, get on motorcycles, and not only do you race, you can also beat up the other uh, racers in there. So, and you have guns, which kind of feels like cheating at some point. Because, you know, instead of, oh, I don't feel like, you know, using my uh, nitro to get ahead of you, I'll just shoot you in the head instead. Definitely sounds like a a game with lots of variety of things to do in it. Yes. So, you know, like there's, uh, like, baseball bats, nail boards, uh, baseball bats with uh, barbed wire wrapped around them, uh, even crazy things like shovels and battle axes. Oh, so that's an old-time game. I, I just pulled up your, your blog link there. So, uh, Road Rash, I've played on 20th Century, and, uh, you know, it's... it's. I'm not sure. It seems like it's one of those games that was released, like, for Windows 95, like, when 95, like, originally came out. So ah. it's, uh, you know, definitely, like, 640 by 480, 256 colors, that kind of deal. And, uh, like, uh, it's... There's one of it's it's also a novelty of the 90s because like it was among the first games that actually uh, came on CDs. So there is actually quite a bit of uh, full motion video in this, like live action video. You don't really see that in games uh, much anymore. Um, but uh, yeah, while Road Rash was uh, you know sort of like a uh, like a plausible scenario type of deal. Uh, Road Redemption sort of throws all that out the window in the name of fun. Uh, because, uh, like, at some tracks, like, it seems to be at random. 
uh, that there like it'll flash like hallucinogenic chemical zone. And what it does is that cars rain down from the sky and you have to dodge cars as they fall onto the road. So it basically makes absolutely no sense. They just did it for fun. Yes, yes. And I can't imagine someone actually riding a motorcycle while carrying a shovel or a battle axe. That, that would seem incredibly difficult. And the minute you try to swing that, I think you'd go flying off. Yeah. And I don't think you could quite aim a gun while on a motorcycle. The gun is almost believable, maybe. Yeah. I don't think you could be quite accurate with it. Um, Accuracy is difficult, yes. Um, let's see. Then there are two other things. Um, like some races, uh, you're actually like racing around a city on rooftops. Um, and to uh, counter this, you also have jump jets on your motorcycle. Also, you go flying off the building, you turn on the jump jet, and then it pushes you up. Some. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, the uh, let's see. I don't think this is quite spoilery. But the very last track, you're riding on this rainbow road through outer space. And, you know, it's like completely illogical. It looks it looks something like a five year old girl would like. <laughs> <laughs> and this is the game you pray- played, Andrew. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so beautiful. Let me watch Frozen. Um. So, yeah, speaking of Frozen, <laughs> our good friend Chris Basselhoff premiered on the series premiere of The Extra Dimension about two weeks ago. So, you know, much ado about nothing, uh, pretty much like every conversation with him ever, unless he has, unless he specifically has some, quote, meat, unquote, to bring to a dinner conversation. I, when I saw the... the feedback notes coming to my email i saw mention of frozen and as soon as i saw that i knew it was something to do with chris because (laughs) of his intense hatred of frozen yeah you know you could say something innocuous you know like oh i my car would not start this morning because the ignition was frozen would be immediately followed up with elsa's the devil's whore Speaking of, um, you should have been there uh, Sunday afternoon, uh, the service. Um, let's see, I forget exactly how Pastor got on to that topic of uh, like the movie Frozen. He was referencing something from there. And you should have seen Chris squirm. That would have been funny. And you know Brooklyn, the little girl, uh, they usually like sit up front. Um, I'm not sure. Yeah, like a uh, two-year-old girl. And, uh, you know, like she, like a pastor, like mentioned this one song from there. I think it was like, let it go or something. And then, and then like, she starts singing it in the front row and Chris just lost it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's good. So I thanked him, uh, uh, for the, you know, the entertaining sideshow during service. (laughs) So yeah, it, it, it was quite amazing there. Raspberry. 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 
Hey, your so, buzzing went away. It must have been the loud screaming in the microphone. Must have. <laughs> so, uh, we have a video in, in the show notes here of a guy that overclocked his Raspberry Pi. When you open up the video, it I guess he plugged in like a 12-volt battery into it. So, <laughs> he opened the video up and just like the whole processor just bursts into flame and just yeah. like starts exploding. So, it's it's entertaining to watch. And and that other, uh, I don't know, be like a Northbridge chip, like just like smolders there. Yes. It's amazing. It, it is amazing. It's, it's pretty good. Yeah. So, I guess that's an example of how not to overclock your Pi. Well, I wouldn't exactly say that's overclocking your Pi. Definitely overvolting it. It looks like he did it intentionally. I, I kind of got the feeling that he just wanted to see it burn. <laughs> so, what, like, I'm, I didn't exactly catch uh, if it was a Model A or B, but... Uh... Let's look, Model A or B. That's a good question, because if it was an A, he probably was just like, eh, I'll get an A plus or a B plus or whatever, and, yeah. and uh, burn up the A for fun. <laughs> yeah. Let's see here. I see a network port on it. It's a B. Uh, yep. It's B. Yep. So, uh... <laughs> So yeah, that so, that was some stupid fun. Hey, maybe it just didn't work anymore. So never know. Could be. So a fix for overclocking is you can install a 3D do-it-yourself printed uh, or a 3D printed do-it-yourself water cooler, which has a penny at the bottom of it, and then it has like this jacket on it and pipes, and uh, it goes up into the water. I didn't see how. It, I assume it probably has a pump or something, but he made it and he attached it to the the processor in his Pi. And supposedly he thinks he can overclock it to a gigahertz. Uh, he didn't actually say that he did, though. Well, I, I mean, thought it was an interesting. I mean, you can clock your Raspberry to uh, one gigahertz without, uh, which, which, uh, like, I just did the safe route and bought uh, like some. I believe he uh, he even actually had that on initially, like just a small little copper block. With like some little miniature fins on it, just like a cooler. Yeah, yeah. I I got, uh, you know, I have that on my uh, Pi. Actually, two of them. So I guess I guess I never overclocked mine just because. Well, I mean, I, I guess the furnace one would be a good, a good example. It just sits there, and every thirty seconds or a minute, whatever. I think it's a minute. Every minute, it sends a new temperature reading up to the website. Right. So it's like that's not all that great processor intense just making a http post every now and then mm -hmm. if you wanted to do like minecraft or something on it that would make more sense which it, there is is that for free actually they yeah. have their free minecraft edition for the pies which is pretty neat i also, still to the other th i what? still need to check that out yes the other thing i've seen is uh guys trying to run the Teamspeak server on a pie and i i guess it doesn't quite work out good just because uh, you have to like run it through an emulator or something, huh. so that that would almost be an application of it. But you probably still not going to get enough hertz to actually make a different difference. Right. So, um, speaking about uh, gaming on uh, alternative platforms, uh, Steam on Linux. How about that? Uh, it has a very nasty bug. It can delete everything under your root folder if you move the Steam installation folder. So you want to know why running rm-rf slash as root is very dangerous? You know, it can happen even if you have variables in there. So null check your variables before running uh, these commands. So I, I love that at the top of this this page for the issue, Steam or someone from there wrote a, a comment. It says, 
uh, please stop posting stupid image memes or unhelpful messages. This interferes with Valve's ability to shift through the noise and see if anyone can figure out what triggers it. I haven't looked up for memes yet, but I, I imagine there must be some pretty good ones out there. I never thought of that before, but this is the gaming community. Like, surely there's a lot of good memes out there for that. Oh, yeah. Um, there's uh, tons of memes surrounding the uh, Steam sales. You know, like, there's, like, one where uh, Gabe Newell is, like, dressed up like a saint and has, like, uh, like the minus 50%, minus 75% labels just raining down. <laughs> It's on sale on sale. And, and like, there's, uh, I'm not sure how many of them there are, but there's at least one, uh, like, short YouTube clip of, like, people trying to stuff money into their CD-ROM drives, uh, turning on their monitors, and it's like, yes, it's finally here! And, like, <laughs> look, to look over to the side, and, like, there's, uh, like, a TV with it's just, like, Gabe smiling. Uh, and, like, I also saw another one where... Like, you know, the guy shoved the money in the drive and then turned it on and it was Origin. And then it was John Riccatello on the other screen. Uh, he's the uh, now former CEO of Electronic Arts. So, OK. Uh, anyways, uh, let's uh, move on a little bit uh, in the gaming area to NVIDIA. Apparently, they've been in some hot water this week over mistaken specifications. The, uh, I believe it's a four-month-old GTX 970 does not have as much memory controllers, cache, and raster operation units as first thought. So, uh, apparently this was just, like, a miscommunication, uh, like, between, like, the engineering and PR teams, marketing teams, whatever. You know how it is in a big company, right? Yeah, I, I could see how that would be mixed up because you get the business people that kind of know their end of things and, and, uh... The engineers kind of have their own wavelength that they're talking on. So um, the configuration of this is pretty interesting. Um, so like each memory controller on this chip uh, has is like 32 bits wide uh, so that you add them up. And uh, like there's it's supposed to have a 256 bit memory bus. So like one of these controllers has to do double duty. So, like, there's this normal three and a half gigabyte, uh, uh, memory where it's like accessed at full speed. But if you combine in this other 512 megs, then it slows down a little bit. Huh. And, uh, like, that's how this problem was uh, originally noticed in that, uh, like, I'm not sure who, but someone, uh, like, did a benchmark on, uh, 970s and noticed that, uh, like, some games tended to pull less than 3.5 gigs of uh, video memory, whereas on a 980, they went more than 3.5 gigs. Um, and, like, they also noticed that if you scale up the settings, the, uh, like, the frame rate is not, does not linearly scale, because, uh, like, the original uh, specifications given to reviewers uh, pretty much had, uh, like, the two cards being, like, almost the same. Uh, but, like, they were not scaling in the same way. So, like, a, you know, apparently quite a few people are mad over this in that the, uh, you know, the bargain of a card that they got was, uh, is now kind of not so great. <laughs> it's, the, the article made a good point in, towards the end of it there, though, that it probably wasn't something that NVIDIA, NVIDIA did on purpose, though. Right. Just because that's something that people are going to figure out, like, 
surely people are going to do benchmarkers and, and analyze that. So it's just that they made a mistake. And, and uh, like it said, that typically once they mess up once, they, they're careful about fixing future mistakes. So they'll probably be watching things and maybe actually testing it before it goes in the box or something. Right. Final, make sure it fits the specs. Right. And, uh, you know, that's, you know, that's what sort of happens when, uh, like, you get a lower spec chip. Uh, because, you know, what happens is, like, they, uh, you know, send through, like, uh, like, you know, one, uh, chip plan. But sometimes, like, when it, or not sometimes, like, all the times when it comes out, some of the chips do not function completely. Uh, so what they do is they disable, like, a few units, mm-hmm. which, which are the ones that didn't actually work. And they sell those as a lower spec card. Um, this happens even in CPUs, like, uh, you know, uh, like for instance, AMD, uh, was really keen about, like, you know, having a quad core design go through. And if a core came out as defective, well, now it's a tri core chip or a dual core chip or something. My, my brother had one of the tri cores once and, and it had it was turned off. He turned it on because he had a motherboard that could do it. I think it may have made a system unstable or something well, my, uh, with it on. The andrewbailey.com uh, server behind me uh, is actually an AMD triple core, and I believe the motherboard supports uh, going to quad with those, and I think he even tried it once, but it wouldn't boot. So, like, I'm not sure if that was actually a defective one or not. So, at this point, I assume it is. Yeah, that's a good assumption. So, after you turn the fourth core on, how did you get back into the BIOS to turn it back off? I think I just reset the BIOS. Ah, okay. So battery like, defaults and yeah, like pop the battery out for a while. So yeah. Ah, uh, but uh, hey, let's uh, move on to well, I wouldn't exactly say hardware. This is definitely not hardware. Um, Windows 10 is definitely coming, and uh, Microsoft showed off quite a bit of it. Uh, I believe it was a week ago. Um, so the big news is that it will be free to all existing Windows 8, but also Windows 7 users. It'll be free for the first year. Uh, that's enough to warrant skipping Windows 9. I mean, I mean, so, so what? So, so an interesting question. I I just realized this leaves in the dark a lot of Vista people. Like it's not as common of an operating system because it did kind of flop. But there still would be people out there with Vista. XP, I can see them not because they did it officially in support, but Vista is still supported, isn't it? Uh, it's in extended support, uh, as is Windows 7. Uh, but, uh, believe it, I believe, uh, Windows 7 entered extended support, like, earlier this month. So it's still relatively recent. So you, you could argue that, that more or less at the time when it was released, 7 was at the same status as 8 then. More or less. Yeah, and uh, I believe, uh, I'm not sure if it's exactly mentioned in this blog post, but they sort of want to make the question of what version of Windows are you running, like sort of an invalid question, which, you know, this, you know, definitely helps with that. But, I mean, that will very much be a valid question, like, forever. It's pretty much pie in the sky, really. Um, Yeah. But... uh, I agree. It's even like the story we did last year about the ATMs that were running Windows XP. Well, they had to run Windows XP. They didn't, they had to upgrade the hardware and they had other factors. They couldn't just install Vista and make it work. Like it, they were kind of stuck. Yeah. So, yeah. So, you know, as, as much, uh, you know, how should I say idealistic 
like they want to be, you know, you're still going to have to ask what version of Windows you're running because the existing versions will still stick around. And, mm-hmm. you know, of course, there'll be, you know, those those people who will not upgrade unless you actually give them, you know, a new piece of hardware. So no matter how much you cajole them. So the the interesting question is, why is Microsoft doing this? One theory I heard is they may be going to... Uh, prescription-based model someday. Another thing I heard was... Subscription. Subscription. Another thing I'd... (laughs) Yeah. I I need to refill my windows, please. (laughs) (laughs) So so I do work for a company that makes software for pharmacies, okay? (laughs) I understand. (laughs) Anyways. That was a good one. Anyways, um... So there's the subscription-based model theory, and then the other one I heard was the idea of uh, lost my thought. Oh right, applications. So what if Microsoft wants to sell applications now? Focus on that and basically give you the operating operating system to run those, but they're going to make applications and charge you for the other apps. Those other theory I had heard. Right, um, like sort of the model that uh, Apple is doing in that like. I'm not sure for how many releases, like Apple's just essentially released their operating systems for free. And, you know, how they do that is they, you know, the, I believe it's like the 30% fee on uh, like App Store uh, purchases. Like that's how they fund themselves now. Wow. So, so, aside, so, so it is really a, a mirroring of Apple if they were to do that route. Well, uh, well, not, not quite all the uh, App Store pur- purchases, but also like the actual hardware cost also. You know, there is something called an Apple tax, so... That's true. That's true. So, yeah, among other features here, the start menu is back, and it's not just the button. Uh, so, and everything runs in a window, even the uh, Windows Store apps. Uh, the modern UI stuff, the UI formerly known as Metro, uh, uh, will not be running full screen by default, so it'll play nicely on a desktop, which is awesome. Yeah. Yes, I really like that when I read that because I have Windows 8 on my laptop and yes, the start button brings you to the home screen thing, which is stupid, like you said, on a desktop. Then, like for instance, Skype is running on a fancy app thing. I, I didn't install the, the standalone thing, so I can't really see my taskbar. I can't see my start menu. I can't see my clock while I have Skype up, which would be nice on a, you know, on a laptop. I, I'm, the Windows is kind of what you're used to. So I think this is this is a good good thing to support both instead of forcing you into one box whether you want to go into that box or not. Yeah. Um and uh you know uh, to tie this all back to gaming, apparently you can quote play Xbox One games on Windows 10. And by play what they really mean is stream. And I think that this is kind of a step in the wrong direction because at that point you're treating desktops like dumb terminals. And in today's homes, it's sort of common to have a dedicated TV just for gaming. So, like, they're not actually, like, moving forward to this. You know, it's just sort of like a remoting type of deal. So, so you know what they might be copying, though, is Steam has something similar where you can play a game on another machine. Exactly. So they, they might be just kind of copying that. I don't I don't know how much people actually use that feature, though. Yeah, um... Because, you know, generally if you buy something, you generally want to play games for that. Um, But, you know, if you have an Xbox One, you know, it is implied that you have a television uh, to play them on. So, you know, 
Uh, plus, with the Connect uh, on there, that might be a little bit of a problem there, uh, at least for Connect-based games. Now, the thing I'd be kind of interested in would be if they could actually produce a emulator for the Xbox. Um, well, it wouldn't really be an emulator because, uh, like, Xbox One is essentially a PC. You know, you have an AMD CPU and GPU in there. Um, so, like, there's, there's like, some way to to, to to load the their software because if it's like the full emulator, there'd be something you could do to like and actually even run it natively. Yeah, exactly. That that would definitely be a step forward there. So, uh, and just as a side note, I've been sort of looking at uh, uh, like Xbox controllers, you know, just for PC, uh, which. Let's see, I think I'm, I'll bring that up later in the podcast. So, uh, moving on, uh, Windows 10. Um, I don't think they've actually mentioned anything about this being like the last 32-bit version of Windows. Um, like, I know that, uh, I think it was Server 2008 was the last 32-bit Windows Server uh, operating system. Uh, like, everything's now 64-bit on servers. But hey, it would be nice to have uh, 64-bit Firefox to go along with it. So, uh, the official 64-bit Windows Firefox builds will be coming with Firefox 37 in early April. So, this has uh, been quite a long ways in coming. I remember, I forget how long ago it was, that uh, Mozilla uh, stopped doing the 64-bit builds for Windows, like, in the beta versions. Uh, like, they, you know, were thinking about this, like, three years ago or something. And they stopped it, and, like, everyone complained about it. So do the people that complain about it just want to feel good about 64-bit, or do they actually see a performance increase in using 64-bit? Um, I think they actually saw advantages with that, uh, especially because Firefox is like the only remaining major browser that has everything in one process. So, you know, like all the libraries, all the JavaScript, uh, everything is like under one 32, uh, rather, a 32-bit limit. Okay. So, hey, uh, speaking about uh, Firefox and uh, web and stuff, uh, do you remember how TCP works? Uh, it's like that weird three-way handshake. You know, like a SYN package is sent to a server, uh, or at least some host. Then a SYN ACK is uh, returned, uh, followed by sending a plain ACK. And then, at that point, data can flow freely. Uh, what if you could send data with that initial SYN packet rather than waiting for the ACK? Uh, well, there's a standard for that. It's called TCP Fast Open. Uh, this is, uh, you know, like pretty much all protocol optimizations. It's been pioneered by Google. So unfortunately, it has very limited support. It's mostly limited to Google's apps and platforms plus Linux. It's amazing what widespread usage of high-latency networks, that is, NG networks, can do for protocol development. So th this seems like something that uh, gamers would especially flock to if like, games would support this protocol, because mm. that would, in theory, save you something. Not much, but something. Right. Um, depending on what kind of games we're talking about, you know, if we're talking about, say... Uh, like Counter-Strike and very fast-paced games, uh, those generally use UDP. Ah, um, uh, that's true. Uh, so if you're talking about... like it wouldn't make a difference. Like uh, maybe like a more casual game, like a card game of some sort, then I'd imagine that this would be you know somewhat useful. 
So you wouldn't care for a slower game. Yeah, I didn't think about it using the UDP. That's true. With the, I, I was thinking in comparison, the tanks game that I play, it doesn't matter if your internet connection is lost for a few seconds ish. As long as you get it back on, it picks up the stream wherever it was at and and gets back in. Right. So um, let's see server support. Uh, Linux three point seven kernel. Uh, and also uh, Nginx one point five point eight and HA Proxy 1.5, supported by Chrome, Chromium, Chrome OS, or Android. Uh, Let's see, uh, a bunch, you know, Linux 3.7, Red Hat Enterprise 7, Fedora 18, uh, Amazon Linux, Ubuntu 13.04, Chrome OS, Android Lollipop, uh, websites, uh, pretty much Google stuff, uh, search, YouTube, Blogger, DoubleClick, so forth. Um... So then it goes into, uh, like details about how this is made. And, uh, there's actually a, uh, TCP cookie that gets back, uh, passed back and forth. Uh, TFO cookie. Uh, so this implies that, uh, this would have to be a known host, uh, that you've already connected to. So it's like once you've established that initial connection, then you can, for subsequent connections, take advantage of this then. Exactly. So, and like even for high traffic sites, uh, like this might not be kept around for, uh, for that long. Uh, but even for five minutes, it would be amazing. That's true. When you, for this, from the server's point of view, which maybe is why Google is doing this, because from the server's point of view, if I can reduce those, the handshake down a couple million times or however many requests they're responding to, that could be a significant amount of load. Yeah. And, uh, like, especially, uh, like a, a cell phone connection from Africa, which you wouldn't, uh, like, I've actually, uh, read, uh, stories, like, uh, I believe it was, uh, uh, was it Scott Hanselman? Uh, like, his wife is actually from Africa, and he's, uh, actually taken a few trips over there. And you wouldn't know it, but apparently cell phone signals are actually not that bad. Uh, not as bad as you'd think, anyway. And, uh, like, from there to, say, an American server, that might be, you know, upwards of one second, uh, you know, round trip time. So, like, if you can reduce that three-way handshake, it would just be amazing. I, I, when you talk about the cell phones in Africa, that reminded me, I've seen, I think it was National Geographic or something like that once years ago, actually, showed this tribe in Africa, and, like, that people are like standing around like mud huts in the background and they're wearing, you know, kind of like traditional-ish African clothes that you would expect them to be wearing. And, and they looked rather poor. And they're all sitting there with their phone. They're holding a smartphone, like all of them. Yeah. It's just like, <laughs> you have no technology except for a phone. Yeah. <laughs> you probably yeah. don't even have a toilet. You probably don't have more <laughs> running water, but you have a smartphone. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's amazing. Um, so, uh, turning our, uh, attention a little bit towards, uh, uh, how should I say, towards China, actually. Uh, so, this, uh, uh, network administrator, uh, got a message, uh, from, I'm not sure who, uh, like, maybe, like, a, another guy in the IT department or something, uh, at 8.30 in the morning. He said, mail server down. Please take a look when you can. Thanks. And he uh, eventually looked at the traffic graph and he freaked out uh, because, like, essentially it was a flat line. And then, let's see, I'm not exactly sure. It looks like a hockey stick, but it's even more of a right angle. It just went shot up, like, immediately. 
Like, you know what a hockey stick graph is? That's where you have this sharp uh, increase of data happening. Yeah. I've, I've heard that term a few other times before. Yeah, I've, I've heard it in terms of, like, uh, company financing. Or at least like uh like when you have a like a startup and suddenly you start selling things. Ah, um, uh, okay. So you see a hockey stick when it happens. Okay. Yeah, that's interesting. So uh, this uh, guy is starting to investigate it, and uh, it turns out that uh, some DNS server in China uh, was pointing to his server for like a very popular uh, domain. And of course, you know, his server was, you know, essentially sending back like 404s or 403s or something. Um, so like he goes through and like, this is how I configured my Apache to just deny, uh, like all these, uh, requests for hosts that my server does not serve. Um, and then, uh, let's see. Then he talks about BitTorrent, how, uh, like there's the, uh, like the tracker servers. Because he has, he was, uh, most of the traffic was to the BitTorrent slash announce URL. Uh, BitTorrent clients in China have, uh, still thought my server was a tracker and were noticing that port 80 was alive again. Oh, oh, so that, that was after he had said that the main thing was over and then it was, he was down and the traffic subsided and it came back up yeah. after he brought it up for a while. Yeah. Um, so, you know, unfortunately, he had to, like, uh, use the uh, IP ban cannon on this, uh, like, and pretty much deny all the uh, IP blocks from China. So, um, yeah, this, I found this to be a pretty interesting read. It was a good article. I, I liked that one. He, he explained it very well, how, how his process and how he, how he figured things out. So, um, let's see. Uh, the number of requests peaked at 52 megabits. Uh, That's quite a bit. Yeah. Let's see. Uh, let's see. Da, da, da. If each of those requests were uh, 500 bytes, that's 13,000 requests per second. That's about a third of Google's traffic. So, um, yeah. Let's see. Uh, let's uh, go on a little bit to Google Fiber. Uh, it's coming to many, many more places. So it's already in Kansas City. Uh, they bought the, uh, I think it was like the municipal fiber build in Provo, Utah, which I actually have been near there. Um, and they've also started to build in Austin, Texas. Uh, but now they're going to be in uh, four more cities. Uh, Nashville, Atlanta, uh, Raleigh, which is like the worst spelled city ever, and Charlotte. You know, this reminded me of was uh, Google TISP. Have you seen that? I don't think so. It was a way system that Google used to have to deliver internet to everyone. And uh, the way it worked was they would send you a kit and you would take the end of the cable and flush it down your toilet and it would go down your, your sewer <laughs> line into the public sewer where they had divers stationed to pick up these cables and plug them into a, a, a router down in the sewer and connect you to the internet. And so in one of the pictures they have a cable coming up out of the toilet and there's like the network router sitting on your on the back of your toilet there. <laughs> yeah, this this definitely sounds like a uh, an April Fool's joke. Yes. It, it was a good one. I remember uh, it was way back when, it was a long time ago when they did, did it. Yeah. And uh, my cousin had told me about it and at first when I saw it, I almost like I, I kind of believed it at first because we had like dial up internet and I wanted high speed internet so bad 
yes, that that was a, that was one of their best jokes Google ever did, I think. Anyways, I can't think about Google Fiber without thinking about Google Tisp. Yeah, and of course it's in beta. It's in beta. <laughs> so the might, what's that? I said that might be a while. Yeah. So it's interesting that they uh, are going to North Carolina, two cities in North Carolina, a state that is rather notorious for the entrenched uh, telecom monopoly. In mm. fact, I think it was like maybe two or three years ago that uh, like they actually passed a law effectively prohibiting uh, municipal fiber builds. Uh, and like that was completely lobbied by Time Warner, AT&T, uh, for the most part. I don't think that Comcast or Verizon uh, are in North Carolina that much. So so the Google, Google Fiber, if I recall how it worked... Their basic service is free. Is that is that correct? Uh, I think that's after a three hundred dollar install fee, connect fee, and but, uh, I mean, and it's only at five megabits. Well, five megabits is still quite a bit. So you know, it's it's better than nothing. So yes, um, it, it, it's 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 a decent speed. They they <laughs> they might be nice and double that. Who knows? Yeah. Um, for the. The setup fee, it's not bad for 300 to set it up. You figure if you're actually going to get like free internet for, you know, a time, if you weren't paying for the extra, it's still not a bad deal. Yeah. And I think that that's like free for either three years or five years. So even at three years, that's less than 10 bucks a month, which is pretty reasonable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and then of course the, uh, one gigabit for uh, $70 a month. Um, so. Uh, let's see, uh, moving on here, uh, the New Networks Institute uh, has urged the FCC to investigate Verizon about contradictory claims about its Title II status. So, it's, Title II is the uh, the common carrier regulation uh, that, that applies to uh, telecoms, so, like, it applies to different services uh, specifically. Um, so, like, all big telecoms, uh, Verizon is against Title II reclassification. Uh, at least for uh, internet services. Uh, but in local tax filings and government records, it claims Title II to get favorable tax rates. Uh, but oh knows, if Title II happens, no one will invest in our networks. Uh, well, wireless voice happens to be Title II, but it didn't stop cell phones from taking over the world. Literally taking over the world. So the Title II thing, that, that was, when I read the article, that was the thing I didn't quite understand. That's somehow preventing like a monopoly from coming in, or, or it 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 is allowing so, a monopoly. So Title II refers to some you know, sort of old law that uh, like sort of classifies how the government is, uh, the government relations with a company. Um, so like if you're familiar with like sort of AT and T, like way back at like pre like 1984. Um, like they were the telephone company, like everyone, uh, everyone's telephone, like went through them and, you know, it was considered a natural monopoly. So title two was the regulation applied to that. Uh, and it's generally applied to, you know, like a lot of telecommunication services, like, uh, you know, like regular, uh, you know, like POTS service, like plain old telephone, uh, service. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, uh, debate right now going on in, uh, like pretty much around America is that uh, like should the internet be considered a Title II service? So so the t- Title II how how did that 
allow the monopoly to be broken up? Does it allow... Uh, Title II is like the sort of heavier regulation. Uh, right now, Internet is classified as Title I or just a basic information service, which pretty much means no regulation at all. Um, so, like, they're uh, apparently they're concerned that if it goes to Title II, then they'll have, like, all these restrictions placed on them and they won't be able to make as much money. Uh, but apparently there's, like, all sorts of uh, uh, things under Title II that could be optionally applied or not. And right now, uh, the FCC is only looking at applying, like, maybe three or four of those. And that's just to ensure that, uh, like, everyone has equal rights and, uh, like, none of this prioritization going on. It, it seems like that was part of what was talked about. It was saying about how the people had paid more money in their bill or something, but the improvements didn't go to their sector of the network or something like that it was talking about was part of it. Yeah, so, you know... Verizon is essentially being accused of, you know, like stealing money from like one division or money to expand one service and putting it into another. So, so that would that be like on your on on a phone bill, like a, a fee or something for like the service line maintenance or something like that. And they're saying that they took that money in and repurposed it, focused it into the one area to improve their network. Yeah, pretty much. Um like a lot of telecommunications companies and, you know, that also includes cable companies, uh, like they're pretty evil when it comes to bills and fees and stuff. Like they're pretty much all bogus. Um, like whenever a company wants to like raise your rates, but they can't because they promised you that it would be like $80 a month for the next two years, but they decide that they really want more than 80 bucks a month from you. Uh, like they'll tack on like a completely bogus fee. But they'll claim that, oh, this is like some sort of regulatory recovery fee. Your actual service is still $80 a month. Yes. Stuff like that. So, so yeah, I, I, I've seen that happen. The phone company I used to have in Hickory, there, they had a, a wireless router fee thing. And then when I canceled it, they were like, we want your wireless router back. And like, I don't have a wireless router. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyways... <laughs> They also wanted my modem too, which I paid for my modem at the beginning of the service, which was funny. But wow. I, I kept it. I told them that. I paid wow, for it. they're they're and just they like, like okay, they're just like the cable company. Everyone else. <laughs> uh, so, so there was one. So you know, speaking there, speaking there, there was, well, speaking there about cell phones before we move on. Actually, no one uses voice over cell phones nowadays. It's all apps. In fact, Google knows of a bug that uh, like essentially disables all the uh, uh, like the voice telephones in Android Five, like the latest Android, uh, and like uh, the message at the bottom says, "Please contact technical support." So, I mean, but why call the pizza place when you can wait around the app store for like the pizza place's app, wait to install it, and then sort of figure out how to use that to place your order? I don't exactly think that this is progress. It seemed like a an, an odd bug. It said that they would call and then it would act like it was working, but then they couldn't ever hear any sound on the one side. And then someone else said that it was only in was it? It was either only incoming or outgoing calls, or it would happen, but then it would work fine the other way around. See, it was kind of an odd-sounding bug. See, frequently happens that when making a call, I can't hear anything, nor the call E can hear me. This does not happen with an ongoing call, but happens when I do a new one. The only solution is to reboot the phone. 
does someone else experience this and find a workaround? So, yeah. Uh, then at the bottom here, the last one, contact customer support. Status, wrong forum. <laughs> I saw the wrong forum, though. So, yeah, but, uh, uh, you know, about this accusation uh, from Verizon, uh, Verizon says no. Apparently, when it said Fios, it really meant voice over Fios. So that's how it sort of, you know, claimed it, claimed Fios as Title II, even though the, um, you know, the big advertising for Fios is not voice, but rather internet and, uh, you know, TV service, which, you know, conveniently is not Title II uh, services. Uh, but then, uh, you know, moving on here about this, uh, you know, the whole reclassification fight that Verizon's investors have told Verizon to stop opposing the Title II reclassification for sake of reputation. Hmm. So, you know, I found that really surprising in that, you know, like, you know, you can like sort of look at the CEO as like the top man in a company, but even he reports to the investors. And, uh, yeah, you know, everyone always says someone after them. So, yeah, and, uh, you know, that, uh, I forget who, who it was, but it was like some ancient Greek guy who essentially boiled down the control of Athens to like his two year old son or something. <laughs> like passing down the chain of command. Uh huh. So, I'm sure that could be done. That would be an interesting, interesting thing. So, uh, Cory Doctorow, uh, we've mentioned him before on this podcast. He has joined the Electronic Frontiers Foundation to eradicate digital rights management. And, uh, you know, I sort of like this quote that he uh, has here, uh, that Apollo was a decade-long plan to do something widely viewed as impossible, go to the moon. Lots of folks, lots of folks think that it's impossible to get rid of DRM, but it needs to be done. Unless we can be sure that our computers will do what we tell them and don't have any sneaky programs designed to take orders from some distant corporation and... Just as a personal note, as I might add, the government, uh, we can never trust them. It's the difference between yes, master, and I can't let you do that, Dave. Um, <laughs> so, you know, looking back on, uh, like the history, uh, you know, like music labels, like they were like the very first people onto a DRM. Uh, but then, you know, thankfully iTunes came along and the record label started to hate them for it. So then, you know, Amazon sort of broke through and said, hey, we'll offer MP3s, which are conveniently not DRM'd, uh, to work on pretty much everything in, like, every environment. So that's how they, you know, defeated uh, DRM for music. Uh, but for video, that's, you know, like, the uh, the major studios, that's going to be a little bit, you know, more difficult, I think. The thing with a lot of the DRM stuff, even like taking an audio file for an example, like someone someplace is still going to like record it, even if they use an ear gap, they're going to find a way to record it yeah. and still put it out there on BitTorrent. You yeah. can't stop it, and but I, you're annoying the people that want to use it legitimately. Yeah, and I think another sticking point is uh, e-books. They are DRM'd, uh, you know, back and forth, up and down, like really bad, so I hear. Um, so, you know, like if you buy a Kindle book, you can pretty much only read it within Amazon's ecosystem. You can't exactly, uh, like read it on like a, you know, as much as I hate it, Adobe reader, you can't exactly do that with a Kindle book. Um, you know, sure you can, you know, read it on an iPad or even a Windows phone, 
uh, but you need the Amazon Kindle app to do that. That is true of the e-books very much. So I have, a, I have a Nook, and the, the device itself, they've op- opened it up well. Like, I can read a PDF on it. I can read the open, there's an open book format that you can, like the Gutenberg project, you can download books in that format for it. But the Nook books itself, there are very restricted. You obviously need their reader to read it. So And, and, then, and then there's also the accessibility argument that... You know, like uh, blind people can't exactly read an ebook that well if it's DRM'd. So how go do, on. How 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 do the blind people read it if it's not DRM'd, or is there a device out there that makes Braille on the fly, on the fly? Well, either Braille or like a screen reader, I think. Ah, uh, okay. Hmm. That that would make sense to have a screen reader for that. In, in the part of the the thing with the I was thinking with Nook, the books, like I've I have the app for the Nook too, and it syncs my books from my Nook account into that. And like you had the whole experience of it remembers your page across devices and stuff. In one sense, without the reader, it's not the Nook book anymore either because it's kind of their own thing. Right. So I, I, I can see why they're doing it that way. And the main key thing I like about the Nook, though, is they open it up to the other formats, whereas the Kindle, at least when I looked at it before, you couldn't like download a PDF or whatever and read it on it. They just wouldn't let you. They wanted you to buy something. Right. So not only does the EFF have a plan to defeat DRM, it also has a plan to defeat internet mass surveillance. Uh, so they actually published a game plan, uh, I believe it was like not too long ago, it says it's even yesterday even. Although I'm pretty sure I read about this last week. Um, so like there's essentially a five step plan that they, uh, that they want to attack on. Uh, they want to pressure internet technology companies to harden their systems against NSA surveillance, uh, which largely looks like that's done. Uh, like for instance, I've, I've heard a while back that both Google and Microsoft and I think Yahoo decided that all of their intra-server communications would be encrypted, uh, not just, like, you going to their website, but also, like, their back-end systems, uh, you know. So, the, like, communication within their network to machines within Exactly. Uh, the second one is to create a global movement that encourages user-site encryption, uh, which uh, seems to be coming along quite well, especially with the uh, the new iOS and Android systems that essentially encrypt your phone by, by default. Um, let's see, the third one, uh, encourage the creation of secure communications tools that are easier to use. Uh, that'll definitely be a little difficult, um, like especially with the uh, widespread use of cloud apps. So like, you know, trying to get people off of Gmail, you know, that's that's going to be, you know, difficult process, and I want that to happen, uh, even though I'm practically using Gmail right now. Um Fourth step is that they want to reform Executive Order 12333. Um, and probably along with that, uh, uh, I think it's Section 205 of the Patriot Act. Uh, because, like, this is the, these are the laws, these are the rules that the NSA uses to spy on everyone. Uh, like, there's a provision in the Patriot Act that uh, says that, you know, uh, companies must hand over relevant business uh, records to a uh, law enforcement, uh, you know, investigation, uh, which is like, uh, the latest, uh, law that, uh, you know, the NSA is using. Uh, but before that, they did, uh, 12333, which I believe was a executive order, 
that President Ronald Reagan signed in 1981. So that's been around for a long time. So, so I think that was the one that allows them to snoop on people in other countries. They, they made a point that I found kind of interesting. They were talking about how the tapping into the, the, the internet, there, there's a hub someplace so that they tapped into and recorded all the data that came through. They were saying that they were using that as an excuse for why they're doing that. But really the scope of what they capture by capturing everything also includes Americans. They're just capturing everything though. And so that in that sense, they're overstepping it by they're using that as an excuse for not being targeting what they're getting. They're getting everything, which includes the American traffic because you can't separate the two yep. easily. So uh, looking down here, when I said five, I'm actually meant eight. Um, so the fifth one is developing guiding legal principles around surveillance and privacy with the help of scholars and legal experts worldwide. Um, so that's like more of a uh, academic uh, thing. Uh, so uh, six, uh, cultivate partners worldwide who can champion surveillance reform on the local level and offer th- uh, and offer them support and promotion. Uh, so that's more of a, like a worldwide resistance instead of like just a U.S. specific one. I noticed this site was very geared for non-U.S. citizens. They did a lot of talking about how the laws protect U.S. citizens, but there's nothing protecting people that aren't U.S. citizens. They, they kept pounding that away like their that's kind of their focus isn't as much on the u.s but as what the rest of the world um so number seven uh stop nsa overreach through impact litigation and new laws so you know that's sort of like the uh you know not only erasing like the uh, 12 333 thing but also uh like going further than that like outlawing this you know even more than uh what the constitution does uh, number eight, bring transparency to surveillance laws and practices. So, in other words, you know, the surveillance that is necessary, like, we need to know, like, what's going on with that. That's that's always a tricky thing, though, with surveillance, is if you tell everyone what you're doing, then people you're watching are going to know that, that it's, I mean, but but you, you want to know what the government's up to and what they're looking at you, though, too, at the same time. it's that, That's a hard one to figure out what the best medium line is there right uh so yeah section 215 of the patriot act aka the business records section so so yeah in uh, in effort to thwart the nsa uh, mega is showing some progress on this front uh that's like the one service that uh kim.com started uh so uh another little service that he has is now mega chat it's an encrypted video service and it reached recently launched uh so like this is following on the heels that uh you know the nsa can essentially listen in on skype conversations um which you know of course we're using skype right now but you're also listening to this on the website so you know that's sort of dubious there yeah hi nsa how you doing uh big week uh, so, yeah, I'm not sure if uh, you can actually, how well you could record a podcast with this. But, yeah. That might be. It's it's a web-based thing, isn't it? Yeah. So you're it, probably going to have to plug into your, your audio on the, the computer somehow. Yeah, it sort of looks like it uses that WebRTC uh, type of stuff.
Okay, how about some uh, appreciate and deprecate? Uh, I want to deprecate M. Scripton. Uh, so for about a uh, M. Scripton is uh, essentially uh, uses I think it was like the LLVM infrastructure. It's like a compiler that takes C and C++ code and compiles it to JavaScript. So you can do all sorts of wonderful things like this, like uh, post all the old DOS games and play them in a browser, uh, like the Internet Archive did uh, like a couple yes. of weeks ago. Uh, so for about a week, I was trying to port Moz JPEG, you know, that really fancy JPEG encoder. I was The one that would take advantage of better algorithms to make the images smaller and less uh, artifacts in them. Exactly. I was trying to port that to JavaScript to create an interface to have live previews. And, you know, I was thinking that, uh, you know, to have that in a browser, that would, you know, not only sort of challenge me to learn JavaScript better, but, you know, also it would, it's like the world's widest platform. Uh, but apparently the stuff is hard to debug and I cried and ran away. <laughs> But that hasn't stopped people from wondering, uh, running Windows 3.1 in a browser. Uh, thanks to that, uh, we can run a browser in Windows 3.1, so we can have a browser within a browser. We have reached the emularity. I really like that that article there of how he, he described it all and showed it. So the thought just came to me. It wouldn't actually work because your browser wouldn't support it back in 3.1. But you could open up on the 3.1 machine or maybe a slightly newer machine, a browser with a browser opening up another machine <laughs> in infinite. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, this, this is uh, brought by, uh, I'm not sure which fork of DOSBox, but you can actually run windows 3.1 and I think even windows 95 in there too. I'd like to see windows one played. I, I've tried like installing that on VMs and stuff before, but the hardware is just, really strange yeah to make it work like the graphics card i couldn't get it to go on a vm i mean it was i mean you know computers back then you pretty much had to go upstairs sacrifice a goat to the dark gods of computing and maybe it would work <laughs> it was it was interesting seeing his article he was talking about how he got the internet working on the the 3.1 and he said he he set up a it was a protocol was like PPP. Yeah. I forget what it stands for. Uh, point to point protocol. Yeah. And then he, he, he was basically his own ISP I said about in there pointing it back to the 3.1 machine and giving it internet that way. Yeah. Um, you know, like the difficulty is that browsers for Windows 3.1, uh, used HTTP 1.0 and not 1.1. So that, uh, like, especially for, uh, like web hosting, uh, like web hosted sites, like on, you know, like major, uh, like for major stuff like that, that would cause a problem. It, you know, essentially like one physical box, one, one IP serving many different domains. So, but, uh, yeah, I want to appreciate now, uh, Kirby vacuums. Uh, so, uh, I recently, uh, if you, if you listen to, uh, Ted one, uh, the Extra Dimension Episode 1, uh, there was a brief discussion in there about filters. Uh, I had mentioned that uh, uh, apparently when the guy came through to replace my smoke alarm, or smoke detector, uh, that uh, he, you know, I asked him to look at the furnace, and he's like, yeah, just call someone, you know, have them change the filter, look at it, because we only use 30-day filters here. 
and uh, apparently, uh, like, I didn't realize that, and the filter had been there for over a year. So <laughs> I had someone come by and change it, and I'm like, okay, I have this clean filter, now I can, you know, clean up a little bit. Uh, so what I did was, you know, I got up my vacuum, and, uh, you know, this was after, like, my last can of compressed air just died, and, you know, it barely did anything. So I recalled that my vacuum, uh, like you can actually take the bag off of it and put the, uh, like the attachment hose onto where the bag comes out. And essentially you have this hose of air. Yes. So, uh, like I did that and, uh, you know, I didn't have any other attachments on there. It's just like this plain hose that when it's on just releases this torrent of air. So I uh, hosed down my server like that, and suddenly it erupted this bitter cloud of dust. And, of course, I had my furnace fan on at the time, so it uh, got cleaned out pretty quickly. But, yeah, I am never buying a can of compressed air ever again. I've used, uh, we have an air compressor at home before, and I'll, I'll use that to blow up the computer sometimes. That works pretty good, too. You just have to watch the pressure. You don't yeah. want to go much past 30 pounds, otherwise it's pretty easy to burn out a bearing, I guess, in the fans and things. Yeah, I've I've done that, too, and I was like, you know, I need to be careful about this, but, uh, like, the thing about a compressed air is, like, it's, like, very intense on one spot. Like, I've actually, you know, you know, blown that into my hand, and it makes a pretty well-defined, you know, cylinder of air in my skin, essentially. Yeah, if you push it up against your hand, it would do, it would do that. And, uh, you know, whereas, you know, like a, a vacuum, you know, it it's not as intense, but, you know, it's, it's kind of like the difference between volts and amps. Like, a vacuum produces a lot of amps of air. There's a lot of current, but it's not really that intense. So that's kind of ideal. So, um, and speaking about this, that's the vacuum that I sort of dump picked from, uh, from Utah once. So that was like totally free. These vacuums are like, you know, upwards of like maybe $800. And I remember my, uh, mom getting one of these back probably 15 years ago. And, uh, I'm not sure how much that was, but, uh, like I discovered that like my vacuum is like maybe f four or five years, uh, like, uh, sooner than that, like, it's younger, I guess, or newer. Um, so if, like, the only way I can think of that she hates me is because my vacuum is better than hers. Hi, Mom. Please call. <laughs> so, uh, we do have some podcast feedback this week. Uh, Ian, our Chromebook user, chimes in, and he says, Trash being a commodity, thanks to it, thanks to burning it for power, is a huge thing in Sweden. They literally buy garbage from other European countries. So, like, they they just run uh, trash incinerators over there to, uh, like, instead of power plants. Remember we were talking with the, the article last time about that? Yeah. Um, so, Ian adds, I have a few albums where the tracks are designed to, trans to transition seamlessly. In those cases, either having a pause or fading them into each other would be distracting. Uh, Ian says, there are many options for gaming on a Chromebook. You can play DOS games and arcade games natively. Uh, Flash games are hot these days. The, the Android stack is being integrated into Chrome OS, and you can always remote into a PC. Still can't play RuneScape, though, so really gaming on Chromebook is a joke. 
So if you would like to submit feedback, uh, use the link on thenexus.tv. And don't forget that today is International Backup Awareness Day, which I somehow forgot, I think, last week. So, yeah, let's see. I don't really have much plans except for maybe staying warm. Sounds like a, like a good plan. Yep. So, and uh, hey, I finally got around to making a blog post uh, last week, so maybe I'll do that again. Feels pretty good. I need to make one. I, I found a whole bunch of fox and raccoon tracks the other day, so I was going to do a post on the difference between cat and fox tracks. Yeah, it was a few weeks ago when it was like sort of nice on a Saturday that I uh, went up and walked around the park, and I actually saw turkey tracks in the snow. They looked pretty strange. I, I remember you saying that you, you had turkeys there in and around the park where you live. Yeah, yeah, like I went back there in the woods and I saw like these weird prints and I'm like, oh, these must be turkey tracks. Uh, let's see, alright, so I guess that's it, so uh, have a good one. Have a good one. Thank you.